you can see that the very last section of this chapter is a little bit different than the majority of it, which is why we're going to put it off till next week. The majority of the first chapter is actually kind of recounting Abraham's life and legacy. You might think that the birth narrative of Jacob and Esau is not that, but if you'll remember, the importance of Isaac having children was not merely so that Isaac could be happy and fulfilled, but so that God's promise to build nations of Abraham's descendants through Isaac might be fulfilled. And so Jacob and Esau are a very, very, very important part of God's promises actually to Abraham. So obviously we're on, the, on a transition here from the narrative concerning Abraham's life to that of Isaac's life and Jacob's life. But you can see how the majority of this chapter is actually thematically summing up Abraham's life and legacy. Last Sunday evening, we saw that God's providence serves God's purposes. God unfolds events in such a way that His decreed purposes come to pass. The way that God unfolds events is called His providence. And God uses His providence, He unfolds events in such a way that serves His purposes or brings His purposes to pass. In other words, we could say it like this. Last week we saw that God's providence is a sure providence. It's sure that God's providence will overrule and intervene, be active in the midst of human affairs in such a way that what He has purposed comes to pass. This evening, as we review Abraham's life and legacy, what really stands out as we consider a really high-level summary of Abraham's life and legacy is that God's providence is often surprising. Last week we saw that it is sure. This week we'll see that it is surprising. The manner in which God causes Abraham's life to unfold, events in Abraham's life to unfold for the fulfillment of his purposes is surprising to us. And this Seeing this in this text isn't just an abstract theological exercise. It teaches us, seeing that God's providence is often surprising, teaches us that just because we may not understand what God is doing, it doesn't mean that He's not doing anything. Like Abraham, when we understand that God's providence is often surprising. Like Abraham, we can press on in faith that the God who has made promises will keep them, even if He keeps them in surprising ways. So first of all, let's notice the length of time that God made Abraham wait at various points in his life. First, we will recall that the child of promise came 25 years 
after Abraham set out for Canaan. 25 years. You think God is moving slowly in your life when He makes you wait a few months to answer a prayer that you've been praying. You know that He's moving slowly in your life when something that you've been praying about takes two or three years to come to pass. 25 years, a quarter of a century, Abraham waits before his son is born. And we're told that when he sets out, his wife is barren. He was 75 and she was 65. And so over the course of these 25 years, his wife is aging from 65 to 90. In other words, things are not getting, the prospects are not getting brighter that the promised seed is coming. And Abraham's own body is aging. We know that when he was about in his mid-80s, he was still able to procreate because that's when he slept with Hagar and she conceived Ishmael. But we read in Romans 4 that by the time Isaac was born, his own body was as good as dead. In other words, we will recall that it's not just Sarah's barrenness that is problematic. There is an effect of aging upon Abraham's sexual functionality. His own body, as concerns procreation, Romans 4 tells us, was as good as death by the time that Isaac came along. And so God makes the man wait a long time through changing events and the slow decay of his own body and that of his wife until it seems impossible. But then... Sure enough, the child is born. It's not our timing, is it? We would think that Abraham probably already would have had a son at the time he was called. And that God who called Isaac, or God who called Abraham, pardon me, would call him together with his family to leave Ur of the Chaldees. And we would think that we would read, and so he set out with Sarai, his wife, and Isaac, his son. But no. It's not the way God would have it. God's timing is surprising. But then listen. Isaac is born. The child through whom God will make of Abraham many nations. You know how many more years until his grandsons are born? 60 years. 60 years. So Abraham, the 100-year-old, finally holds the child of promise, through whom his offspring shall be named. And he probably thinks we're talking 15, 20, 25 years until he's going to start to see these nations begin to multiply. But Isaac turns 15, turns 20, turns 25, 30, 35. 
36, 37, 38, 39. Finally, at 40, Isaac takes a wife, Rebecca. But then we see in Genesis chapter 25, verse 21, that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. So Isaac marries at 40, but he marries a barren woman. And so again, God makes Abraham wait. The timing is not our timing. It's not what we would expect. We would think, okay, Abraham has waited a long time. Now he has Isaac. We're gonna, we would think that Isaac is going to multiply quickly. That Isaac is quickly going to take a wife and that we're going to see child after child after child born, grandchildren to Abraham in order that God might quickly bring this promise to fulfillment of making Abraham into many nations. But we see in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 26 that Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Abraham, that means, was 160. Because you recall, he was 100 when Isaac was born. So it's in his 160th year that Abraham sees just the first the first fruits of the fulfillment to make his descendants into nations. God's timing is surprising. It's not the kind of timing that we would expect. And then at age 175, Abraham dies. Where is this land? Where is the possession of this land that God promised to him, to his descendants after him? He's been, he's been granted as a gift nothing of the land. Remember he bought that small parcel from the Hittites. But God hasn't moved miraculously to give this land over to Abraham. So just think about how slow God is moving on his promises as pertains to Abraham's life. We read it in 13 chapters, Genesis 12 through Genesis 25, but 100 years transpire in these 13 chapters. 100 years. Think of all the days in between the significant events of Abraham's life. All the days prior to the birth of Ishmael. Then all the days prior to the birth of Isaac. Then all the days prior to the marriage of Isaac. And all the days prior to the birth of Jacob and Esau. All those ordinary days where nothing seemed to be happening as pertains to the promises that God made. God's timing is surprising. This is typical of the way that God works. He often does that. Consider that it was roughly 4,000 years from Adam and Eve to the coming of Christ. 
It's a question little children ask. Why didn't God just send Jesus right away? Adam has to watch one of his sons kill the other before the Messiah comes. Adam has to watch a whole line stray from Yahweh and become ungodly. We have to see the earth become so corrupt that God cleanses it with a flood. We have to see all of these events unfold and many, many more. While God's people presumably cry out, How long, O Lord, until the promised seed of the woman should crush the serpent's head? Generation upon generation. Again, we can read the Old Testament relatively quickly. If you put your mind to it, you could get through it in a week or a couple weeks. Block out a few hours every day. Saturday, spend most of the day. You could read through it relatively quickly. It's the size of a big book. But century after century, generation after generation have gone by. And God's timing is not what we would necessarily expect it to be. The faithful are born, walk with God, and the faithful die. And another generation comes up, and another generation returns to the dust. And this promised seed of the woman is not here yet. And then finally he comes. But here we are 2,000 years later. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? We've seen, as we saw in the Old Testament age, generation come and generation go. The faithful walk with the Lord and return to the dust from whence they came. And they sleep, awaiting their resurrection bodies. And the world's systems continue to operate. And the church, at times, sees some success and at other times, is stomped upon. Almost in pockets and places to near extinction. And the faithful cry out, How long, O Lord? Second Peter chapter 3, Where is the promise of His coming? Things continue much as they have all the way along. The Lord is slow in our eyes. His timing is not what we would expect. You can think of prayers that you prayed, perhaps prayers that you are praying, perhaps for the salvation of loved ones. And you pray and you pray and you pray. Day after day, Week after week, month after month, year after year. Often these prayers are answered. But oftentimes the Lord answers them after long years. Or even post mortem as pertains to the person praying. Sometimes dear saints pray for their loved ones their whole life through and die 
like Abraham did without ever seeing what he longed for come to pass. But then the Lord does bring, does draw that person to faith. Or in other ways, frustration of our plans, even just in smaller things, just waiting for that next step in your career or to become homeowners or to purchase a vehicle, to find a spouse. Sometimes God answers our prayers with an outright no. But other times and oftentimes God makes us wait longer than we would prefer. God's timing is oft surprising. But we need to remember that just because God's providence is often surprising because of His timeline, just because we may not understand what God is doing, it doesn't mean that He's not doing anything. We see that in the Abrahamic narrative. We recognize that even though God made Abraham wait a long time, God brought to fulfillment all of the things that He promised Abraham. He made him into nations. We read about Ishmael and the people that come from him. We read also about the descendants of Abraham's wife Keturah and nations come from them. And of course, the rest of the Old Testament is full of the story of the nation that comes from Jacob, the nation of Israel. And then, of course, there is that spiritual nation, which is not Abraham's physical seed, necessarily, but it is of both Jews and Gentiles, all whom the Lord our God will call. God brings these things to pass, though He doesn't bring things to pass in the timing that Abraham presumably would have preferred. We can take great comfort from this narrative in seeing that just because we don't understand the way that God unfolds His providence, just because His timing is surprising to us in this narrative, it doesn't mean that He wasn't doing anything to the fulfillment of His promises in this narrative. And likewise, it doesn't mean that He's not doing anything in our lives bringing the things that He's promised, the things that He's purposed to fulfillment in our lives. Second, notice the unlikely mothers and sons that God used to fulfill His promises to Abraham. We've already talked about Sarah's barrenness. At least 25 years, she's been unable to have children, but presumably before that, Presumably all the way along. What an unlikely woman for God to choose to become the mother of many nations. A 90-year-old woman who has never before given birth. An unlikely woman. And then we saw unmistakably last week, it was God's providence to bring Rebecca to Isaac. As Bethuel and Laban said, the Lord has done this thing. This woman that the Lord brings 
Again, as we've seen in the latter half of chapter 25, she was barren. So for 20 years, Isaac and her tried to have children, but it was not a possibility, ordinarily speaking. Again, a surprising choice of a mother of many nations. And then we come to consider the sons. Of course, there's Isaac versus Ishmael. I think we know why Isaac, what part of me, why Abraham said in Genesis chapter 17, Oh, that Ishmael may stand before you. Because he was looking at his body in his mid-80s. Looking at his wife's body in her mid-70s. And if you had to put money on the son that's standing there before you, already in his teenage years, or the son that's yet to be born to this aging couple, you're going to think the son that's already there. It's a long shot that an old aging couple is going to have a child. But the Lord says to him in Genesis chapter 17, it's through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. A surprising choice of a son. We see Ishmael actually grow up to become a mighty warrior. It says in Genesis 25 and verse 18, he settled over against all his kinsmen. It seems to mean to most commentators that in spite of tension and strife with surrounding peoples, he carved out a place for himself and held his own ground. So Ishmael is this strong, impressive man, the kind of man that we might expect God to make a nation of. While Isaac is the sort of man that is more contemplative from all appearances and a little more laid back, a little more reserved from what we read of him. We see him when his wife comes from the far country. We see him out meditating in the field toward evening. We see Isaac a little, just a little more laid back than Ishmael. We see him following in his father's footsteps in 26, which we'll come to, and lying about his wife, seeing some cowardice. Of the two, Ishmael, even, even granting that they had both been born and that they had both developed, it seems that Ishmael was the stronger, more impressive man, humanly speaking. Isaac, not so much. So Isaac versus Ishmael is a surprising choice. And then Isaac versus the sons of Keturah. We only have here to think about numbers. There's Isaac, and then there's all these multiple sons. So if you want to build a nation, do you go with a solitary son or multiple sons? But again, it's Isaac. It's I through Isaac that Abraham's offspring shall be named. And then is Jacob and not Esau. 
Two nations are in your womb, Genesis 25 and verse 23. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Ordinarily, it would be the older that would have preeminence. But God chooses the younger. But again, it's the same kind of thing as with Isaac and Ishmael. When the boys grew up, verse 27, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Esau is out killing animals to eat them while Isaac's at home making some stew. Now, there's nothing wrong with Isaac being at home making stew. But again, in terms of sort of the manly, macho, strong, impressive, imposing figure of who you're going to make a nation of, again, we'd have to say Esau and not Jacob. But the older serves the younger. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So we see that God surprises us in the narrative of Abraham's life by using people we'd least expect to accomplish his purposes. Not only does God's timing surprise us, but the choice of the people that God uses surprises us. We would have probably chosen fertile wombs to bear nations. We probably would have chosen strong warriors like Ishmael to become heads of nations, mighty hunters like Esau to become heads of nations. But God uses Sarah and Rebecca and Isaac and Jacob. And throughout the rest of Scripture, we see that God does this in other places also. He makes the pagan kings Artaxerxes, Cyrus, Darius, his servants, as they command the rebuilding of Jerusalem, as they resource even the rebuilding of Jerusalem. What a surprise to us as we read. Or a carpenter from Nazareth. Where do the wise men go when they follow the star to Jerusalem? Into the palace. Because that's where we would expect to find God's Messiah. And yet they search the scriptures to find that he is to be born in Bethlehem. This little no-name town. And then when he grows up, he doesn't become this regal figure with all kinds of might and pomp and circumstance. But he's cutting, shaping, joining pieces of wood one to another, presumably at first working with his father and learning the craft and taking over after what we suspect was a relatively early death of his father early in his life. 
Jesus running the family business, or at least working in the family business, a carpenter from Nazareth, the Savior of the world. Or we can look at church history. We think of the Reformation, when the gospel was obscured, not lost, for God's always had his people, but obscured. And this no-name monk named Martin Luther leads the charge to recover the gospel. God often surprises us by using people that we least expect to accomplish His purposes. There may be a co-worker in your life, a family member, a friend, a church member, that you just can't see how God may be at work to accomplish His purpose through that. Perhaps they're difficult to deal with. Perhaps you think they just don't have much to offer. Don't forget Sarah and Rebecca and Isaac and Jacob and the pagan kings and the carpenter from Nazareth and that no-name Augustinian monk, Martin Luther. God shows us in this passage giving us a high-level summary of Abraham's life, that just because we are surprised by the people that God chooses to accomplish His purpose, doesn't mean He's not accomplishing His purposes to the people of His choosing. We may not think that God is going to use this one or that one. We may not understand how God is using this one or that one. But just because we don't understand what God is doing through someone doesn't mean He's not doing something. Then third, notice the unlikely event in which the seed of Abraham blesses the nations. We've seen God's surprising timing. We've seen God's surprising choice of people. Thirdly, we're seeing God's surprising choice of an event in which the seed of Abraham blesses the nations. This isn't in this text, but this text is preparatory for that. Because this, is, this text is summarizing Abraham's life and legacy. And it's showing us that those things that God promised to Abraham earlier in his life are actually being brought to fulfillment. And we recall what God said in Genesis chapter 22 to Abraham, that in your seed or in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. Not through Esau, but through Jacob. Eventually through the line of Judah, through David's line, all the way down till we come to the one that Paul says in Galatians 3 is the fulfillment of this promise. Jesus Christ. But what event is it 
through which the seed of Abraham blesses the nations. The crucifixion of a peasant. The crucifixion of that carpenter from Nazareth. He works in his father's shop. Then he wanders around Israel, teaching, gathering people to himself. Every time they want to make him a king and rally around him, he sneaks off, keeps a low profile. And then one day, one of his disciples betrays him and leads the authorities to him in a garden at night where they can arrest him without making a scene. And it all comes to naught. The disciples on the road to Emmaus speak for many of Jesus' contemporaries, I'm sure, when they say, we had hoped that he was the one to restore Israel. It is through this event that appears to be a total loss that actually all the nations of the earth are blessed. Jesus, on the cross, after living a life of perfect obedience to God, for all who will trust in Him, people from every tribe and language and people and nation, all of those we read about this morning, clothed in white robes with palm branches gathered around the throne. Jesus bears the wrath that they deserve for their sin and so blesses the nations. We would be wrong to read the Abrahamic narrative without reference to the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham later in the scripture. This in Genesis 25 is preparing us for that. And so we see as we trace the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, time and again, surprising timing, surprising choice of people, and surprising events until we come to the surprising event. The crucifixion of a peasant who according to God's decree was the savior of the world. The one in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The son of God. God surprises us even after that event by using events we least expect to accomplish his purposes. I was just reading this week about the persecution of the saints in Jerusalem after Stephen's stoning. You know what happened? As their opponents tried to stamp out their witness, they scattered from Jerusalem, taking the message with them. And churches were birthed throughout the Roman Empire. When we mentioned Martin Luther earlier, this little event of nailing 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg, we tend to think of it 
in dramatized terms, as if he went up and did this bold, dramatic thing. But apparently, according to Carl Truman, who's a historian par excellence, this was actually a very ordinary activity because the door was like the message board, the notice board. It's like a bulletin board at work where announcements are posted. Or we might, we might say in our day and age, it was like posting a tweet on Twitter or, or posting something on your wall on Facebook for discussion. It was actually a very ordinary event. So the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the persecution of saints at Jerusalem, nailing 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg, these surprising events which God uses to accomplish His purposes. What about the starting of a small church in Barbados? Or the starting of three small churches as we've had a few like-minded ones planted in the last year? Could it be that God would use something so seemingly insignificant, something so seemingly small for the reformation of this island, for revival here, that we would see many souls come to Christ. It would be just like God to unfold providence in a way that would surprise the watching world. What big things might God be doing through small things? that you would least expect to be significant. We need to remember that God's providence is often surprising because of the events that He chooses to use. Just because we may not understand what God is doing through certain events doesn't mean He's not doing something. So we see in the life of Abraham both near and in the immediate text and in the closer fulfillment of promises that God made to him, and in the fulfillment of promises further afield, later on, much later on in history, we see that God's timing is often surprising. God's choice of people is often surprising. God's choice of events is often surprising. God's providence is often surprising. God's providence, as we saw last week, always serves God's purposes. But God's providence often serves God's purposes in ways that we might not expect. And so what we need to learn from this is not just the theological truth that God's providence is often surprising. But we need to learn to trust God's providence even when it's surprising to us. Even when we don't understand what God is doing, what His timing might be in our lives, in the bringing of His purposes to fulfillment for us, individually or for us, God's people together. We need to trust God's timing. We need to trust 
in God's providence with respect to how he might be working it out through people that we might not have chosen to use or that we might not understand how God is using them for what purpose has God brought so and so into my life for what purpose has God brought me into the life of so and so we might not understand how God is at work through various people in our lives in our spheres of influence or on the global scene but we need to remember that God's providence in that regard is often surprising and trust his providence with respect to the way that he unfolds people and their interactions with you or with one another as he accomplishes his purpose and then we need to trust in God's providence with respect to the events that he causes to unfold as there were surprising events in the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham so there are bound to be surprising events in the unfolding of his providence to us and for us we might not always then understand God's timing we might not understand how or why he's using the people he's using we might not always understand how or why he's using the events that he's using but God's surprising providence in the life of Abraham and in the fulfillment of his promises to him ought to be grounds for us to trust in God's providence that it will serve his purposes even when his providence is surprising to us we see in later scriptures the truth that God is doing all things for his own glory and in the unfolding of events in human history that bring about his purposes it's no different he's doing that for his glory he's unfolding things in such a way that will eventually redound to his glory in other words though god's providence is often surprising when it is we can safely assume that it is intentionally surprising in order that in the end we may know that it is he who done it and not we ourselves and praise him for it this is the way that he unfolds many of the happenings in Abraham's life John Calvin said on the commenting on this passage the way that something like this the way that God chose this one and not that one the way he did this and not that and the way he worked out his timing shows us that the church has its origins not in the industry of man but in the grace of God this is the way that God unfolded many of the happenings in Abraham's life and doubtless this is the way he will unfold many of the happenings in our lives for his purposes for his glory in ways that might surprise us so that in the end we're going to see this was a god thing this thing has come from the lord 
as Laban and Bethuel said. So trust God then. And trust His surprising providence even when you don't understand it.